It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. The funeral was a blur for Desiree Cox. Her mother, Peggy, was buried on February 4th, 1991. The day before, loved ones had gathered to say a rosary at the Williamson Funeral Home. That also happened to be the eighth anniversary of Peggy's husband Donald's death. Here's Desiree. There was a lot of people there. It was pretty big. I don't even know all of the people that spoke and did stuff. You know, I don't know who planned it all. People with the church took that over and did it all, and I know Father Arnold was there. (laughs) Father Edward Arnold was a priest at the St. Philip's Catholic Church in Franklin, Tennessee. The family had been going to Mass there for years. Father Arnold, who has since passed away, 
would officiate the wedding for Peggy's sister, Rachel. He also presided over the funeral for Peggy's late husband, who died after lingering in a decade-long coma. Peggy had been a devout Catholic in life, and after her death, the community gathered to pray for her and say goodbye. I don't know who all the other people were, <laughs> and that um, a lot of people had turned out. But mourners weren't the only ones flocking to the funeral. Police were there, too, hunting for suspects. And they had supposedly videotaped the funeral at the grave site when you, after you, they take them back to the grave site or whatever. And, um, but they, they were never found, saw anybody of interest or whatever in that. So they say, I don't know. I've never seen it. They said they videotaped it. I don't, re I don't know though. So supposedly the killer always shows back up. So the graveside surveillance turned up nothing, but the police in Franklin, Tennessee would continue to work Peggy Cox's murder. Unfortunately, all these years later, all that effort has resulted in no arrests or convictions. Peggy Cox and her family remain without justice. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, the Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is The Murder of Peggy Cox, Part 2. Last week, we told you about the murder of Peggy Cox, a fast food employee gunned down at work on February 1st, 1991. If you haven't listened to that episode, we suggest you go back and check it out. But if you have, here's a very quick refresher on the basic facts of the crime. Peggy was a 49-year-old widow and mother of three working the drive-thru at a Hardee's in Franklin, Tennessee, just off I-65. That night, around 11.45 p.m., a man ordered a roast beef sandwich. Peggy went to give him change for his order, but instead of accepting it, he shot her through the window, piercing her brain stem. Peggy collapsed in front of Jude, her 20-year-old son, 
who was also working at the Hardee's. She was rushed to the hospital, where she died. Today, the case remains unsolved. In this week's show, we'll get into the investigation and a few theories that have arisen over the years. We will also discuss the fallout this act of violence had on Peggy's family and the community. First, let's touch base with a journalist who covered this murder from the jump. Jim East is a longtime Tennessee reporter. He snagged a newspaper job right out of high school and started climbing the ladder from there. Jim ended up working for the Tennessean, a daily newspaper based in Nashville, for 24 years. Well, I, I actually uh, spent most of the time as a general assignment reporter. I like that better than having a beat because I could do different stuff every day. One day I might be interviewing a superintendent of schools and the next day standing over a dead body eating a bologna sandwich. Jim got a call about the Hardy's shooting early on. I talked to the cops all the time, and they called me and said, we got one. I didn't go to the scene. I went to the cop shop, and they told me all about it. Jim set about gathering the facts of the case, as well as the poignant details that bring the awful story to life all these years later. I'm a stickler for details. One of my unwritten signatures is that I put in little details, like the son was fixing a roast beef sandwich that the killer ordered. He was 15, 10, 15 feet away from his mother when he was shot, and he dropped and crawled over to her and held her till help got there. I mean, stuff like that that I try to inject humanity into a story. As we told you last week, Franklin, a small city on the edge of Nashville, isn't exactly a high-crime area. There aren't many murders in Franklin, Tennessee. Back then, there wasn't, and there still aren't. What's more, the seeming randomness of the Peggy Cox slaying perplexed cops. Initially, they tried to dig into Peggy's life by questioning relatives, seeking a motive for why someone might want her dead. Here's Desiree again. Because they kept saying and wanting to pursue the mad boyfriend uh, scenario, and it's like, dude, she didn't have a boyfriend. <laughs> you know, we, we were trying to get her to be more, you know, social and everything. She just hadn't started, you know, she didn't have a secret life or anything. She worked at Hardy's and she went to church, you know, and in between she might go to laundromat every now and then. She didn't really have anything going on. So there was, they didn't have a lot of direction to go in as far as it being anybody that would have known her. There was a few guys, older guys at the time who were like, hey, your mom's kind of cute, but she didn't have any boyfriends. <laughs> but investigators seemingly didn't find anything to indicate that Peggy was specifically targeted by a person who knew her. Here's Jim again, speaking about his impressions of the investigation. It was unusual, but it was still just another murder. I don't want to diminish the importance of Peggy Cox's life and any of that by saying just another murder. But in the practical terms, from a police standpoint, they investigated it just like they would any other murder. 
So investigators began running down other angles. Franklin police and the FBI declined the murder sheet's request for interviews about this case. But we were able to piece together once promising leads from talking with Desiree and Jim and by researching contemporary news coverage. According to Jim, a random robbery-gone-wrong scenario seemed promising early on. Their theory was that somebody got off its right at an interstate interchange, a major interstate interchange with I-65. And their theory was that somebody got off at that exit, went through the nearest drive-through to commit a robbery, uh, got scared and um, shot when when Peggy saw the gun and turned. Uh, they shot her and then hit the interstate, and God knows where they are now. And so that was their theory of it. The thing they thought most likely was that somebody pulled off the interstate to rob a place quick and get back on it. The robber went bad. He killed her and hit, hit back on the interstate north or south and was long gone. And you have to remember there were no videotapes and stuff like that much like there is now. Apparently, at some point, police told the Cox family that they were looking into a gang of teenagers. Desiree was skeptical of that lead because the teens were black. Witnesses described her mother's killer as a white man. And then there for a while they were like, oh, it was the, we think it, these kids in Columbia had something to do with it because they robbed a Hardee's in Columbia. And it's like, well, why would they rob a, why would high school, yeah. No, I don't think that was it. Or whatever. After all, her mother had been shot so quickly. If robbery had been the motive, the killer would have had to have panicked almost immediately. They didn't get any money or anything, so I don't think, and as far as I know, I don't believe they even asked for any. Columbia is located around 50 minutes to the south of Franklin. We tried to find mention of the Columbia, Tennessee robbery on newspapers.com. We haven't had luck so far, but that doesn't mean much. Not all newspapers are housed on the site, and not every robbery attracts media attention. Interestingly enough, we did locate two other Hardee's robberies that occurred in Tennessee in the early 1990s. On June 19, 1994, four kids robbed a Hardee's on Highway 69 in Parsons, Tennessee. That's an hour and 40 minutes away from Franklin. They committed the crime in the drive-thru, but they used a pellet gun. On October 30, 1994, a man walked into a location in Jackson, Tennessee. That's over two hours away from Franklin, and he robbed the place. On the surface, neither of those incidents sounds too much like the murder of Peggy Cox. Lacking any strong suspects for a potential one-off robbery-gone-wrong case, police pursued other possibilities. They wondered if the murder could have been part of some sort of series. A few years before my mother had been, been murdered, then at the time, the next exit up on the interstate, which was Moore's Lane, 
it's not the next anymore because it's grown so you know exponentially now it's like four exits up or something anyway there was like a quick sack market there and a lady had been murdered in there and about 10 years ago they figured it out who did it so we were kind of like well (laughs) maybe they'll figure because they were thinking maybe that you know they were related but they were able to rule that out that that didn't have anything to do with it that quick sack case Desiree is referring to was the murder of Patricia Ann Smith. The 32-year-old clerk at the local gas station slash convenience store was murdered in a robbery on October 25, 1986. The gunman used a 12-gauge sawed-off shotgun. William Lee Tollett pled guilty to that crime in 1995. Then, in 1997, someone began a campaign of terror against fast food workers in the area. And then there was all those other fast food murders in Nashville and uh, Clarksville by that um, weird dude. I forgot his name. She's talking, of course, about Paul Dennis Reed. We'll probably end up doing a whole episode on him at some point. Reed killed seven people all fast food workers. He went to prison and died in 2013. They, uh, they tried to associate her with them and there was nothing. No, you know, it didn't. Yeah. Didn't have anything to do with that. So we really don't know that it wasn't, you know, being that it was on the interstate, that it wasn't somebody who just, but from what they were saying, just from the description of the car and rumors from what other people were saying, that's why they were, you know, had come back here the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, thinking it was maybe something to do with somebody that worked there or something. That's correct. Police at one point suspected that the slaying could have been a tragic case of mistaken identity. For the record, this is also the theory that Desiree finds the most compelling. The latest Thing that they were pursuing and then they were kind of come to a dead end with that was that there was two ladies who worked there that were named Peggy and they think that it was what that somebody there had a beef with the other one about selling drugs or something they weren't supposed to be doing and Anyway, it had something to do with that. So it was like they think it was these people that worked there. But the one thing about it was is the one that they thought it would have been uh, died uh, quite a, like 20 years ago or something. So that just kind of shot that, you know, you might be on the right path, but who knows because, you know, they're not around anymore. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin 
or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's R-O dot C-O slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Franklin police even brought the case to one group that's particularly famous in true crime circles. They actually took it to the Viaduct Society thing, and they were, you know, they didn't, they gave them some ideas to go back and work on, but they haven't, they didn't really get that far or with it or anything. That name may sound familiar to all those of you who follow true crime. The VDOC Society is a club made up of homicide investigators, criminal profilers, forensic scientists, prosecutors, and other individuals with an expertise in cold case murders. They sometimes consult with investigators about long unsolved cases. The lack of theories about who did this isn't necessarily surprising, considering what police had to work with. After shooting Peggy through the drive through window, the killer sped off north on I-65. He drove a compact car, a late-model white Chevrolet Impala car that was sighted in the area at the time of the murder was tracked down, and the driver was, presumably, cleared. There was also a blue or gray Nissan Sentra-type car that investigators were searching for. Police even resorted to releasing a sketch of a possible witness, a white man with a narrow face and close-cropped hair. He was apparently located across the street at the time, 
servicing his rather distinctive vehicle. It was a gold compact car with a black or dark blue personalized front license plate reading Lisa or Liz. That's L-I-S-A or L-I-Z. He is not a suspect in the shooting, but we want to find out if he saw anything we need to know. Then Franklin Police Chief Fred Wisdom told Jim back in 1991. You know, there was that angle about the possible witness across the street at the jail station, all that that never really panned out. There was a car over there getting gas, apparently, at that shell station, and that's the driver of that car was pumping his gas, and, you know, who knows whether he saw anything or not. I mean, it was a long shot, but it was one of the only shots they had. Desiree filled us in on what people saw from the other businesses across the street from the Hardys. There's a gas station in a which was closed, but there was the Waffle House beside it. And it being Friday night in, at the time in Franklin, there was not much else to do. There was a lot of people at the Waffle House, but no one could really. And so there were several people at the Hardys at the time, but it, it had, by the time they realized what was going on, the car was getting out of there. And um, so basically everybody was like, it, there was, it was like a silver or gray little two-door car kind of back then i think it was the nissan Sentra kind of look is what they described and that they saw like a white guy driving and that's about all we could get out of any of them because nobody really um like the ones at the waffle house knew there had been a commotion across the street but they couldn't really tell you anything and then back then they didn't have any cameras or anything going on as for the narrow face possible witness who police were searching for Desiree isn't sure where that description came from. And I'm not sure who actually even gave him that description. Um, if it was one of the ones from the Waffle House or from, see, there was like a cleaning guy or whatever there, and I can't even tell you his name. Um, he was an older guy. He was at Hardy's that night. My brother at the time knew him. I remember he had bad ankles. I don't even know why I know that. But, he was there, and I don't know if he was able to give him that any of a description or or not. Um, that I don't know. The case remained open. All investigators were left with was an indistinct voice over an intercom and a few sightings of a compact car. There's no DNA. There's no sketch of the suspect. Just a cowardly slaying and a phantom vanished in the night. Circa 2014, Franklin police made a major push in the media to elicit leads. Desiree said that bumper stickers seeking information were distributed, and a billboard about the case went up. Police even set up a website, www.catchpeggyskiller.com. Whether or not that attracted any movement is unclear but the case is still unsolved. Detective Darren Barnes, who worked the case for a long time, retired in 2019. www.catchpeggyskiller.com now leads to an error page. Once it, 
it looked like it was going to be unsolvable. It really drove them nuts and probably still does, although the the cops that worked the case, the lead cops on it, uh, are retired now. And this east of their ass, it drives them crazy. They wanted to find this guy or woman or whoever the shooter was. Meanwhile, the Cox family was left to deal with the sudden, violent loss of their mother. And that trauma was inflicted on not just Peggy's children, but her entire family. I had some little cousins who found out um, while they were... (laughs) My aunt and uncle were trying to figure out how to explain it to them. They watched it on the news while they were in the other room. Family counseling sessions were set up for the three Cox siblings, as well as other relatives from both sides of Peggy's family. I mean, it's an ongoing thing as far as dealing with it. So, you know, going to counseling just doesn't really fix anything. It sort of helps you deal with some of it. Desiree herself has continued to seek out therapy. She said her counselor has helped her view her trauma in a new way, to define herself as a survivor. Um, I just never had thought of it that way, you know, because I didn't really, you know, you know, it's like, oh, well, my mother's the victim, but, you know, I was victimized too, technically, so. But I never thought of it that way, so. It's a lot to think about. <laughs> And, of course, it wasn't just the Cox family that was affected by the murder. The surrounding community has also had to deal with the pain of Peggy's death and the lack of resolution in her case. People look at what it does to us, but it traumatized a lot of people. One of the girls I went to high school with, her husband was a... He was on one of the law enforcement. I don't know if he was with the county or the... Anyway, he was working that night and was down there. Um, it ended up, I think they called every body on earth that night. And I didn't know to one of our later reunions that he had actually been there. It affected him quite a great deal, which I did not know that. Um, but yeah. Um, I guess too. Um it, you know, it being she was only 49 and she had kids and and that they knew, a lot of them knew us. So I guess, too, that that had a lot to do with it. Yeah, well, yeah, it's just the fact it affects way more than, you know, I guess people take into that into consideration when, you know, oh, they're just going to do this, and you know, whatever. Um, the ripple effect it has on everybody that's. You know, not you know, from the family and the friends to the just the people responding that it, you know. Desiree told us that she is sometimes worried that the killer would turn out to be a member of that community, someone she actually knew. You'd like to know what happened, and but then again, you have to go through that. You know, once you find out who did it, like if it's somebody you knew or something, then. There's that whole scenario you have to deal with. And you think you're past everything, but then you're like, wow, that's a whole bunch of stuff that I wouldn't even, you know. Yeah, it's just weird. <laughs> I don't know. If it was somebody that I knew or um, something like that, 
that'd be a lot to deal with. I mean, pretty much for the most part, I mean, I don't hold a grudge. I pretty much have let it go. But so I don't know how I would feel if I knew who it was that did it or I came face to face with the person that did it. I'd like to say that I wouldn't change, you know, my stance on that, but I can't say that. I'd like to think that I wouldn't, you know. But then again, come, you know, if I actually saw them and I don't know. I guess that's where the scary comes in is the unknown about all of that. Over the years, Desiree said that she sometimes found it hard to talk about her mother's murder during the course of her everyday life. And a lot of my coworkers did not know what was going, what had happened until they had started stirring this up in the um, news several years back. Um, the detective that just retired, he was big. He was actually a patrol cop. Knew on the force or something with the night that this happened. And um, anyway, he was big on stirring it up. So a lot of my coworkers didn't know about it until like they would be at lunch or something. And it would come on the news and they're like, oh, my God. And I'm like, I'm all right. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they're all freaking out because they just learned out about learned about it. So I have to remember that it's a shock to them. Even though, you know, I mean, it, it's not like I've gotten used to it, but it's like, oh, yeah. Or, yeah, they're like, oh, my God, you are you didn't tell, you know, and it's like, what am I supposed to do? Just walk up and start tell you one day? Or, I mean, it's not something you generally just, you know, bring up in conversation. But she has found out some surprising things about her latest crew of coworkers. Where I work now... Oh, I've had multiple coworkers that I've worked with who've had their at least one of their parents murdered, and one of them was actually a teenager, and his father was murdered in front of him, and that was very odd because to have so many people in one work, work together that had to happen because you usually don't run across that very often. Yeah. But I think most of those were solved. One of them I don't think was, but most of them were. But yeah, yeah. It's like we belong to a little secret society that no one knows about. Her mother's case remains a particularly infamous unsolved murder in the region. Yeah, pretty much you can bring it up. You know, I don't have to usually explain much because you know, they'll be like, um, what happened to your mom? I was like, you know, the lady that was shot at Hardy's. And they're like, oh, my God, that's your mother. And I'm like, yeah, where have you been? <laughs> Under a rock. <laughs> yeah. They've had it on TV all the time now. So, but everybody knows, you know. It's a, you know, all I have to do is say the lady that was killed at Hardy's, and even now, being what thirty years later, instantly people still know. Over thirty years have passed since Peggy was murdered at the Hardy's in Franklin, Tennessee. Some, including journalist Jim East are pessimistic about the possibility that this case will ever be solved. I can't imagine that it will ever be solved. Uh, unless <clears throat> maybe if, if the 
if the perp dies and his wife or somebody knows about knows that he's the one that did it or whatever and would confess uh maybe but that's such a real long shot i i just uh, i would be surprised if it were ever solved desiree holds on to some hope though somebody out there still knows and they are probably just not you know maybe they're just not close enough or whatever yeah well i mean it would be great if they knew something if they would come forward and say something since it's been so long i mean you know i've got nephews who don't understand you know why they don't have grandparents and that's kind of strange <laughs> you know um having to explain to kids why they don't have grandparents but um it would be nice to you know them to come forward and so we can at least put it to rest you know, if the people aren't around anymore, or at least figure out who did it or whatever. Even though it's a scary thought to know, it would be nice to know. When we spoke to Desiree, we found her to be a smart, strong, composed woman. She seemed steady, even when talking about her mother's horrific death. Desiree told us that when she was interviewed about the case with her sister, she had a much harder time keeping back the emotions. Alone, though, she can make it through a detailed conversation about her mother's murder without cracking. She's Peggy's eldest child, after all. She's trying to keep it together for everyone. Still, the frosts of early February can bring back the memories. Yeah, she did. Yeah, hers was the first. Her birthday's the first. She died on the first. And then my dad had died on the third, February 3rd. So... Yeah, the first few days of February are just not really cool. Um, <laughs> they're not too bad, though. Uh, and it'd be strange things. It's like, I mean, it was 1991 when she died. So, and I mean, like one day was I was sitting there and I was like, grabbed my cell phone. I was like, I need to call my mom. And then I was like, what the heck? <laughs> you can't go, why are you going to call your mother? <laughs> you can't call your mother. <laughs> you forget. It's just, it's weird. Please, if you have any information on Peggy Cox's murder, call the Franklin PD tip line at 615-550-8404 or text 615-FPD along with your tip to 847-411. There is a $25,000 reward in this case. Special thanks to Desiree and Jim for speaking with us for the show. Thanks to Lieutenant Charles Warner as well. Our condolences to everyone who knew and loved Peggy Cox. For this episode, we relied on reporting from the Tennessean and the Williamson Herald. I first heard about the case through the YouTube account Heavy Case Files, which published an interesting video about fast food homicides that I'll link to. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, 
and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to the Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.